Our Common Nature, an exaltation of our living earth, an exploration of our niche within it, and an examination of the lasting solutions we will create by shifting our culture through care, wisdom, and working in community with the earth toward accordance with its way. In this space, we highlight place, building bridges, and finding solutions in the common ground on which we all stand. It is with gratitude and humility that we acknowledge that we are speaking, learning, and broadcasting from the ancestral homelands of the Mohican people, who are the indigenous peoples of this land. Despite tremendous hardship on being forced from here, today their community resides in Wisconsin and is known as the Stockbridge Muncie community. We pay honor and respect to their ancestors past and present as we commit to building a more inclusive and equitable space for all. Hello and welcome to Our Common Nature. This is our first interview with the esteemed filmmaker John Feldman of his new film, Regenerating Life. John, Regenerating Life is a deeper, more nuanced look at the climate crisis, stating that the question of fossil fuels as a cause, let's say overly reductive, in effect seeing the symptom or a corollary of the climate change issue as, as the cause. In your own words, if fossil fuels aren't the cause of the climate crisis, what would you say is? So, yeah, I'll get into that, but we should also ask, um, how is it possible that the rise in carbon emissions could be a symptom of the problem? That strikes people as very strange. Hmm. But the cause of the climate crisis is the destruction of nature. It's the destruction of the biosphere. And, you know, the biosphere is, is, uh, is all of the plants and animals and fungi and bacteria, everything living on Earth. And this system of life is what regulates the climate. And we can talk about how it does that. But by destroying this system, which regulates the climate over centuries, then we have caused the climate crisis. And really, the the visible signs of this climate crisis, we all know it's, you know, storms, floods, droughts, aridification, wildfires. These are all the visible indications that we're having a climate crisis. And if you think about it, these are all caused by water. These are all water events. And so when we look at how life regulates the climate, it turns out that it's all about water. And because, you know, we we live on a, um, a, a water planet. Water flows through everything. And as water changes phase, it moves energy around. So we can get into that more, but that's basically the answer, that the climate crisis is caused by the destruction of the very system that regulates the climate. Right. So actually, let's walk that back a little bit. What caused your interest in making this film? Like, What what got you into wanting to say this? Well, it's kind of a long um, story that got me to this. I, uh, I was actually started to make a thinking about making a film about farm ecology, farmscape ecology. And I was visiting a farm and talking about it. And I began to uh, get very interested in regenerative agriculture. And I, um, I learned very quickly that there were people who were saying that regenerative agriculture was a solution to the climate crisis. Um, and I began to think about that a lot. And I just made a film about Lynn Margulis, the scientist Lynn Margulis, called Symbiotic Earth. And Lynn helped develop the Gaia theory with Jim Lovelock. And the Gaia theory basically says that all the organisms on Earth regulate the climate. So I began to put that together and say, well, you know, maybe I should look at how regenerative agriculture affects the climate crisis. And as I started to get into that, the film changed and it became about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. I mean, my type of my type of filmmaking, the process is my research. Hmm. And I learn as I'm interviewing the people. And then I go back and I tell a story. And in this case, I tell the story of my learning. So it has a narrative flow. So that's how I got into this whole thing. (laughs) 
Sure, sure. And I will say that in watching the film, it, it, you really are on a learning journey with you as the filmmaker, as, a, as an audience member. Right, right. Yeah. I think it's an evocative way to tell the story because we, we're all learning together throughout the process. It's sort of um, in an egalitarian way to, to as, a, as a video watcher, as a film watcher, to yeah. be on the journey with you. Exactly. That said, coming back to things a little bit, there are a couple of very poignant motifs throughout the film. As you mentioned, water before. And often we kind of touch on um, poop. And can you speak on why these are so important to the understanding of the climate crisis? Yes, absolutely. So when we think about the biosphere, we think about everything living, we have to kind of get in our heads the idea that everything cycles. Everything cycles. So I use this example in, in the film. You know, we, you look at your hand or you look at another person and you think, oh, you know, that's a solid thing, you know, right? But actually, that thing you're looking at is really a flowing thing. All these chemicals and minerals are, are flowing and energy are flowing through that. It's more of a, we're, we're more of a fluid in a way mm -hmm. um, than we are a solid thing. And it is this system of cycling, constantly cycling, which creates an entity which is self-regulating uh, and self-perpetuating. So, it's, you know, life is a self-sustaining system, and it sustains itself because it's constantly cycling these things through itself. We can kind of break down these cycles and look at them individually, although keep in mind that, you know, every cycle is connected with another cycle, it's connected with another cycle, and it's, you know, it's really complex. But we can break it down into, you know, the water cycle, the carbon cycle, the nutrient cycles, and the energy cycle. And I have to say right up front that energy is a little different, so we can get to that later. But with the water and carbon cycles, these things flow through us. And in the film, I developed this thing called the cycle of life. And it's an animation that you maybe you could even show it um, that encapsulates the flow of energy and the flow of all the organic matter that makes up life. Once you get this, you begin to look at things basically very differently. So if we start, and I'll try to be brief, if we start with the sun, right? The sun comes in and it hit plants. And through the process of photosynthesis, which is really a miracle thing, the plant takes water and carbon dioxide and it turns it into sugars. And a byproduct of this is oxygen. And these sugars are life. They're the food for all of life. Everything, including us and including all life on earth, gets its food, which means it gets its energy from this process of photosynthesis. Although, except for some bacteria, um, which don't. <laughs> so the tomato that I ate uh, last night was made by a plant from carbon dioxide and water. And when I eat that tomato, I burn it in my cells. The mitochondria in my cell burn that those sugars in that tomato. Mm -hmm. And that releases heat and it releases carbon dioxide and water. And those are the very constituents from what the tomato was made originally. And so that carbon dioxide and water is used by another plant to make more sugars, and it all cycles in that way. Uh, it's an amazing thing. And the flow of energy, so now I'm going to get to energy a little bit. The, the energy comes from the sun, and it circulates through living systems, and then it goes out. It goes back out to space because energy can't be created or destroyed. So that that's kind of this cycle of life where the energy comes in and goes out, the carbon and water cycle through living things. Mm -hmm. But we also, all organisms um, need nutrients, need minerals, nitrogen, phosphorus. There's a whole handful of minerals that we need. Now, originally those minerals came from rock and the rock eroded away and the water took it into the soil, and then the plant gets it from the soil. And it's funny, because when I was in school, we learned that, you know, soil takes hundreds, thousands of years to form, and that's mm -hmm. why it's very um, precious. But actually, what happens is, once those minerals and elements get in the soil, and a plant uses them, 
and then an animal eats the plant, the animal poops back onto the soil and those minerals are cycled again through the plants, through other animals and so forth. So mm -hmm. even though they come from the rock, they're then cycled and recycled over and over and over again. Um, and I suppose that eventually, you know, millennia from now, they'll go back to rock. But I don't know quite how that's going to work. <laughs> um, so, your landslides um, so those and, are the so those are kind of the cycles. The 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 carbon cycle, which I've linked to the uh, what I call the cycle of life. The nutrient cycle, which I call the poop cycle. You know, a lot of a lot of people don't like the fact that I have so much poop in this film. Um, and there is <laughs> there is there is a lot, and some people are offended. But you know, I think that's interesting because we are we are a little bit wary of like talking about poop and looking at poop and all that stuff. But it's a really important stuff. Um, so maybe I'm trying to make a point there. Um, and um, and then the energy cycle, um, and we haven't talked about the water cycle, which we can talk about more. I mean, the water cycle through photosynthesis and combustion is one part of it, but there's all the other parts of it where it, the small and the large water cycle, whether where it cycles through the atmosphere and through the trees and so forth. But we can move on from that. Sure. Well, I mean, just to kind of recap, it, it sounds like as a you know, as concerns the climate crisis and and global warming specifically, as you said, the mitigating processes of life are exactly what keeps the temperatures more temperate um, or is the ac hvac kind of system of the planet earth right and right that only is able to occur when these when life as a whole um, meaning our ecologies all taken together are operating functionally in a large amount of the man land mass and kind of as one and since there has been so much point blank destruction of square footage of living soil living ecologies that energy cycle like you said the light entering the earth's atmosphere and cycling through the life here and it's not really exiting in the way that it needs to or should um or has traditionally done let's right, say right um, it is now sort of speeding up because there is more as you say in the film more light energy being captured and reflected back into the atmosphere then would be used to be part of the life cycles meaning it's not being stored and taken up in plant life and and the animal life then thereafter and and kept in the soils a lot of that energy is being well straight up burned and then also overly reflected back into our atmosphere and then also kept in our atmosphere because of all however much particulate energy and carbon dioxide and water vapor that would have been stored in the ground is now acting as sort of our greenhouse plastic on earth. It might be an oversimplification, but well, no, I, I, I just want to get back to the, the last part of your description um, because it does, it does get really confusing, not your description, but the situation. So we are retaining more energy on the planet than we used to. That retention is due to the, the greenhouse effect. Sure. But it's not so much. Um, when you do the math, um, which I do in the film, it's really less than 1% um, on an average daily basis, as it were. But that less than 1% um, is accumulating. Mm -hmm. So the, whole, the system is, is warming up because we are transmitting less back out to space. And there's two real basic causes of that. It's number one, the greenhouse effect is increasing. And number two, the cooling effect, which is done by plants and trees, is decreasing. Sure. And if I can just get back for one moment to the, the greenhouse effect, the greenhouse effect is the thing everybody talks about and you know for for reasons which are are rather bizarre the whole climate has been narrowed down to the greenhouse effect as you said in the very beginning it's been reduced to the greenhouse effect and not only that the greenhouse effect which is very important for if there wasn't a greenhouse effect we wouldn't have any life 
the, the greenhouse effect has been reduced down to carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide, the source of carbon dioxide has been reduced down to fossil fuels. And it's mm -hmm. it, that simplification um, has led to, to this mania, which is really getting quite destructive. So we have to kind of keep in mind that the greenhouse effect is important. And then I'll just go on one more second here. Then the um, the thing about the greenhouse effect is that everybody concentrates on what you might call the insulating metaphor, that the that the greenhouse effect insulates the earth and therefore it keeps the heat in. But people aren't really asking, well, where does that heat come from? And that heat is the re-radiation, the sunlight comes in and hits the earth, warms the earth, and then heat is re-radiated off the earth. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot more heat re-radiating off the earth than we ever did before. And that's because we have cleared so much land. We have bared, apparently, um, or according to people who study this stuff, we have bared 40% of the land that was once green. That's huge. So bare land re-radiates more uh, heat. Um, and that is what's increasing the greenhouse effect. And we all know this is true. You know, if you walk on concrete with in the sun with uh, bare feet, it's a lot hotter than if you walk on the grass. It's tremendously hotter. So by bearing all this land, we have increased the greenhouse effect. And by cutting down all these trees, which bared all the land, we have reduced the cooling effect. So, mm. okay. You brought up, you know, that this is a, for bizarre reasons, it's been reduced to this, but I really love the way that, you know, you made this complex issue very uh, understandable. Part of the quote from George Carlin was around, I think, the naivete of the environmental movement, which wants to reduce um, a very complex issue down to a, we got this, this is all we have to do. This is part of, I think, the the culture of we want quick fixes. We want right, simple right. solutions. Um, you know, we just want to take a pill and be done with whatever it is. We don't want to go to what the underlying cause of the disease is. How do we get past that naive thinking? A film like this, I feel, is really pushing us in the right direction, but the broader culture needs to kind of shift in order for this type of thinking, this broader systems thinking, rather than um, this reductionist, uh, you know, attitude. Well, I, I mean, obviously, I wish I had the answer to that question. Yeah. Um, and because... If you were to say what you had just said, the beginning part of what you just said to most people about how it's been reduced down to this one thing, and we all know that you know there is no silver bullet solution to any crisis, right? right. Um, people would get it; they'd immediately understand. So it's kind of, in a way, obvious, but it's become a dogma. This whole fossil fuel thing has become a dogma, and it's. Uh, so I don't have the answer to that question. I mean, what I'm doing is, is making the film and I'm, you know, talking as much as I can. And what you're doing is, you know, getting it out to people. I find that people get it fairly easily because a lot of the stuff that we were just talking about and that we'll keep talking about is common sense. Some of the, the diehard people who are set on carbon reduction methods and sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and all these crazy things, they don't get it perhaps because they have so much invested in, in the carbon narrative. And in fact, you know, they're, they're not the target audience. I mean, one thing I've learned is I don't try to convince the diehard carbon people. It gets into arguments that are just too angry. <laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, 90% of the people or more, you know, do understand it and when you when you start to talk about things like well you know plants transpire plants sweat and you start to explain how rain cools the earth they all get that it's common sense so that's my only thing and, and i do think that when people watch the film or when you talk to them you find that it's it's trying to get people to look in a new way right this is all about a new paradigm thinking and so forth 
And there's no one thing that will convince people or convince everybody, but individual people, you know, when they watch the film, something triggers it and they say, oh yeah, I get it. Right. You know, in filmmaking, we call that a gotcha moment. Yeah. 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 And yeah, you don't know when that's going to happen, but people do get it um, because, you know, most people are pretty smart and, and I guess the real answer is you just have, we just, we just have to keep hammering, <laughs> hammering the message, you know, home. I mean, for me, watching the film, that gotcha moment, even the first time I saw it way back when, was when you put pretty clearly that photosynthesis and combustion are opposite ends of the same equation. And the way you put it so clearly in the film, I mean, and that that could be taken into an an over-reduction again, but it did, Uh, for me, kind of illustrate, oh, this is not simple, but more simplifiable than we need to make it in order to get at the real root causes. And I think speaking to a little bit more about that, this idea of, you know, a case in point of why it's, you have to think more systems thinking than just, you know, one plus one equals two. We can take the the thought, the temperature of the earth and thus the conditions for our climate is set and governed by the collective warming and cooling activities of the creatures in the biosphere, especially trees and plants. Wouldn't just planting more trees be a climate change solution? So, you know, absolutely. Trees and plants are the um, air conditioners on Earth. Um, There's no question of that. But we often think of a forest as just a bunch of trees. So there have been efforts, oh, you know, we're going to plant a thousand or million trees in Africa. And most of those trees die. And the reason is that a forest is not a bunch of trees. A forest is a really complex ecosystem, and a real forest includes everything from, you know, the bacteria to the owls to the insects to all the plants and and even to us, the people who are planting the trees or so forth. So how do we plant an ecosystem? You know, there, there, <laughs> there have been proposals to really take a chunk of forest, like a big potted forest, really, uh, you know, the size of a shipping container was the effort, and transport that and plant that, you know, and then you'd have to do whatever, 10,000 of them. And, you know, I guess that could work. But to me, the answer is to regrow the forests from the edges outward. Mm -hmm. So if you think about where we have destroyed the forests recently, um, and by that I mean in the last 50 years, and there are a lot of forests we've destroyed, we could start to regrow the forest from the edge. So if we planted the same species of trees on the edge, the soil would grow towards it. The ecosystem would come out and kind of meet the trees, and we could grow it from the edges outward. It would be able to regulate or to gain regulation from you know being proximate to that forest, right? Right. I mean, we know that you know if you have a garden, that garden will keep growing unless you create an edge right um and and what we and that's what we've done we've created these edges but we get rid of the edges and we encourage the thing to grow out you know it's complicated i mean one of the things i'm thinking about recently is that and i wish i put it in the film actually you know we look at a dead tree if you look into a forest there's lots of dead trees there's standing dead trees and there's fallen dead trees and then we look what happens in caretakers of forests and parks and stuff like that um and some landscapers they they look at those dead trees and they say oh we have, we have to get rid of those there get all those dead trees out of there but actually a dead tree is a living vibrant ecosystem and the dead trees that we see in the forest are one of the most important things that grow that ecosystem. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, you know, if we were to kind of drag some of those dead trees out from this edge, right into the area where we wanted to grow, you know, that would help it because everything is happening in that dead tree. It's really amazing when you think about it. I just want to point out something in connection to something you said earlier, John. I think the distinction you're making in regard to the dead trees is analogous to the relationship with poop that was so divisive. Right, right. In the film, you know, it's like some sort of tendency to externalize uh, something perceived as um, negative despite its place in the cycle. There seems to be a, a similarity between those two things. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's an aesthetic thing. You know, we don't like to look at dead trees. They look, I don't know, dead. And we don't like to look at poop for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. People want that woodlawn curated look. 
right. that was right. popularized in England, which is just not, it's not the way the forest looks on, on its own. If right. It's really healthy and living. Yeah. Yeah. We have to start thinking yeah. of that as ugly. <laughs> the bare woodlawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and lawns in general. Um, right. Because right. It, it, as, as you're saying, it sounds like the forest is more soil than tree in a way. Well, I don't know. I mean, you got to have both, right? But it's certainly true that we tend to look at a forest and see the trees and we don't see the soil because it's, we can't see it, you know, except the surface. But I, don't, I try to not to get into the thing of, you know, which is more, which is less, because you'll always be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Wouldn't um John uh, wouldn't trying to grow a forest, you know, from perennials and grasses make more sense because then you're, you know, you're inviting in bird habitats and gr- you're you're basically growing a forest from the beginning um rather than the end by just sticking trees in. That makes a lot of sense. In other words, follow the course of a natural succession. Right. Um yeah, that would make sense too. You'd have to do it right, you know, in terms of what's native to that land. But uh, that could be done, too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I keep coming back to this point because I think it, in the film you make it pretty important that with the pioneer forest succession, with regenerative ag, with protecting the smallest life forms, the anthropods and all of those that tend to the creation of the soil, we are ultimately drawing down not just carbon, but also retaining water in the soil for longer, slowing its flow and slowing the heating of the planet. So in a way, would would just saving the soil be another reduction or isn't that actually one of the more important keys here? It's not a, it's not really a reduction. I mean, you do find people who say, you know, all you got to do is save the soil and the soil is everything. And, you know, I kind of agree with that. But again, if, you, if when you start to say it's one thing, um, then you're getting yourself into a trap um, because nothing is just one thing. It's always a combination of things and it's very complex. But the soil is the key to, to all of life, right? We come from the soil and everything comes from the soil and the soil is definitely underrated. <laughs> and um, it's, you know, a vibrant living place. And I have these shots in the in the film of, of the soil and you can see the mycorrhizae and you can see the network of things that are growing in there. And through this mycorrhizae, the plants can communicate with one another. Um, it's incredibly, incredibly important. And saving the soil is, is, is huge. And you know, farmers, I don't know, I guess probably before World War II and, you know, all indigenous farmers probably understand this. They understand that that it's all about the soil. And, you know, you picture in your mind a farmer picking up the soil and saying, yeah, look at that stuff. Um, but nowadays, um, we've killed the soil. And, you know, when we say save the soil, what we're really talking about is save the soil from industrial agriculture, which kills it. So, yes, absolutely. In terms of the climate the soil is fundamentally important. Lynn Margulis called it the tissue of Gaia. So, you know, it's, it is the tissue of Earth, this layer. And there's soil under the ocean. You know, it goes all over. Sure. It's, it's a little frustrating in hearing this and having the background knowledge that the few of us here do have, um, because it seems like something we already learned, you know, yeah. many times over, but even as recently as the Dust Bowl and the protective measures that were taken after you know, the incessant plowing through the 20s and 30s that, you know, we stopped and now we're doing it again. Right. I know. It's it's pathetic, really. <laughs> yeah. 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 In regards to the Dust Bowl, that had me thinking during the film, uh, someone mentioned that the fall of man was when the plow was invented. Right. But I want, I was thinking, though, isn't there a big distinction between an animal pulled plow um, because the animals, as they're plowing, are also pooping into the soil. So the soil is not dead from an animal plow. And that is a big distinction with diesel-powered tractors plowing because there's nothing going back in. And they're also plowing, you know, a hundred times the amount, say in one, you know, per hour or whatever. So is it necessarily the case, do you think, that, that the plow itself is negative even when operated with, say, cattle or horses? 
So, well, that's a very, very good point. Um, and I think the distinction is not so much the whether it's pulled by animals or tractor, it's the depth, how deep it goes into the earth. And when I was in India and they're they plowing, he showed me, you know, that the plow only goes in, you know, two inches, maybe one and a half, two inches, maybe three inches. So it's, it's a shallow plow. And what happened with um, when we were able to do it with these big machines we we plow very very deeply you know it's sometimes like this and so the depth is is part of it plowing is very complicated because you know everybody says plowing is bad and it was west jackson who said you know that's the fall and you know he's using that obviously allegorically but um all of the regenerative farmers and ecological farmers i talked to you know, basically you're saying, yeah, we, we try to plow as little as possible, but they've yet to say, we don't plow. We don't plow at all. And um, I'm sure there are ways that, and, th- and there are people working on ways. Um, Cynthia Daly at the Chico in, in California, you know, they're doing all these experiments with, you know, on, on an industrial level, how to minimize plowing. And so um, I do think, like you say, that it's, it's a little bit of an overstatement to say that plowing caused all our problems. And it's also a little bit naive to say, oh, we got to stop plowing, you know. But it is important to start thinking about this and to understand that when you take a knife into the earth and turn it over, you're killing things and that the life is oxidizing. You know, you shouldn't do it so much. Some of the people I talk to, they plow in strips. I'm sure you've seen this. They plow in strips and then have a strip down you know, between the strips, um, which they don't plow. And the idea is that the mycorrhizae and the other things will grow back to the area where you just plowed. So yeah, it's, it's an, it's, it's not black and white, the plowing thing. Yeah. There's a lot of nuance there. It sounds like, and, 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 I, and to also keep in mind that a lot of the justification for plowing is for the purposes of growing annual monocultures. Right. Um, and it does seem like given the ideas of healthy, deep soils being one of the key points for um, water retention and carbon drawdown, it makes sense to stop being so fussed about annual monocultures and annual crops and start finding ways to incorporate more roots in the ground, perennial agriculture, that you don't have to plow. You're not exposing the soil again and again every year. And you're, in fact, if you allow in, you know, certain ways, landscaped, um, aesthetic or otherwise, allow for the litter to drop and to stay in the place there, there is ultimately a growing, a building of soil on the ground level and overall a reduction in the need for fertilizers and for additional irrigation. You know, a lot of that, the fertility is recycled in place and the water is kept in place by having more spongy depths of soil right um, which which isn't isn't you can't form if you're going to be constantly plowing it exactly you end up exposing all of that to the air exposing it to the sun which cooks it and ends up killing all these micro um, ecologies right exactly exactly and it, it west jackson who's the one who said you know plowing is was the fall his goal his lifelong vision is to create perennial grain agriculture and um so yes, that is also an incredible, you know, that's a way to go, but you know, we're certainly not there yet. And you know, when we talk about the soil, you you were right to use that word sponge. Soil holds water because it has all these air spaces, just like a sponge does. And it turns out that those air spaces are created because around all the little pieces of dirt is this sticky substance, which is a protein produced by uh, fungi. It's called glomalin. And um, it's amazing that when you think that it's the fungi and, and other life underground who have created this environment where they can live and where they can move around, um, which has this incredible water retaining ability. So yeah, it's you know it's amazing. Yeah, sure, sure. So I'm gonna take it in another direction. G- given that we're kind of all, in a sense, speaking to the choir here around, right, right. Um, 
you know, the causation of our the climate crisis and these heating patterns. It seems like we all here are pretty affirmed in the deduction that it is about the destruction of life. That is, that is a big cause for it. Um, and that soil is so very important in, in the sustenance and the maintenance of life as a whole, both on land and, and in the sea. There is a lot of contention out there around the question of climate change, specifically speaking to climate change deniers. What do you say to people that call it just an eons long cycle that happens? It's This is already happening whether humans were a part of this or not. So there's an amazing and, and, and really important book by Peter Westbrook. It's called Life as a Geological Force. And it basically is is saying that we can't separate the geological changes and the rocks and the formation of the earth itself from life. I mean, while the earth, you know, maybe goes back three, four billion years and life is one and a half billion or maybe two billion, once life arrived, it had an incredible impact on the geology of the planet. I mean, take like the White Cliffs of Dover, right? The White Cliffs of Dover are made by the skeleton of these tiny algae. You know, so life has shaped the earth and its geology in many ways. And now as humans dominant on the planet, we've also shaped the geology tremendously. So to try to separate it out and say, oh, no, it's caused by, you know, natural geological forces of the tilting of the earth and the the winds and the currents and all these things. And that all of these, you know, there have always been plenty of hurricanes and we've always had heat spells. Yeah, that may be true, but you can't deny the fact that humans have altered the surface of the earth tremendously. And it's that surface of the earth which affects or is the geology or affects the climate. And John brought up uh, the Dust Bowl. You know, yes, the Dust Bowl was a man-made thing. But, you know, it wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been some uh, windstorms and uh, droughts, right? And you could argue that, well, we caused the drought by all the things we did there. But nonetheless, it feels like the Dust Bowl was a combination of human activities and these natural weather events. Um, And so it's really, to me, impossible to separate the two out. I mean, and in the film, I, I talk about the the Sahara Desert, and you know, I still can't get it in my head that that was caused totally by man. It just doesn't seem, you know, feasible, right? Um, right. But it was probably a combination of man-made destruction of the environment and overuse of the environment, plus some natural geological changes that happened over, you know hundreds thousands of years sure so i don't know if that would convince i don't know if that would convince the climate denier but that's my take on it <laughs> i think it's worth pointing out that when you're dealing with uh popular ideas rejecting anthropogenic involvement in uh the climate crisis you have to investigate the origins of those ideas and understand that they're coming from a place of opportunistic political manipulation. I think the idea, particularly that uh, the human contribution to climate change can be ignored as some sort of natural process, has a lot of uh, insidious involvement from parties that are really invested in maintaining the status quo. And it's not necessarily some sort of emergent idea that came about from some scholarly process or anything like that. Right, right, absolutely. And also, you know, since the climate crisis has been equated with fossil fuel burning. What a lot of these climate deniers are denying is that fossil fuel burning, the man's activity of burning fossil fuels, caused the, the crisis. They're not, you know, as far as I know, denying that life regulates the climate because, well, they probably haven't gotten that information yet. Hmm. I think that sounds accurate to me, John. What I've heard is people contending the level of change that we can attribute to humans. They, uh, in, in the most part, everyone acknowledges that the climate is always changing. It's a dynamic system. Right. What I love about your film is the way that it kind of brings us above that argument to kind of just step back 
and try to understand how we are a part of that dynamism and right, right. you know how we can interact with it in a more holistic way. Exactly, exactly, yes. And this leads specifically into my next question. In your film, you taking as fact that humans' activity is a major contributor to the warming of the planet and the climate thus changing. In your film, you, you get into some very specific solutions, such as, you know, as we talked about before, saving the forests, covering the land, rebuilding the soil, and uh, keeping the water upstream. Right. You want to go into that a little uh, bit? A little bit. So, so it's interesting. So in the film, for, for people that haven't seen it, I have these characters, uh, silhouettes really, of kind of protesters holding signs. And um, I put on the signs very positive things that we could do that a protester might, you know, if it was my protest, the signs they would carry. And so one of them is cover the land. Um, because as we talked about earlier, you know, if you cover the land, you reduce the greenhouse effect and you also help save the soil. Another one is save the forests, work with nature. You know, these are slogans, right? And, you know, and as a filmmaker, I'm kind of attracted to them because they're, you know, I hope they're catchy and I hope the graphics are cool. And there are a lot of things we can do. And I think that, you know, we were just talking about there's a scientific issues here and, and all this stuff. And then there's political issues and all this stuff and how they interact and how science and politics interact, you know, is another film. But I thought that the idea of a protest, a protest of people wanting to care for the land, right, um, is a way to kind of bridge this nature politics issue. So they are, I mean, it is an activist film. And so it's, you know, and I think the slogans work. They're all very superficial, but they're correct, I think. Yeah, no, but they, they do they do touch on some important stuff. Um and I like your the specific point around working with nature because that is the last one you make and also one of the most in some ways contentious because it seems to say that you know so much of our society so much of our economy is built on ignoring the way nature works and and just moving things as much as we can in linear fashion with disregard to the cycles and the the externalities that obviously come up, you know, as as corporations like to call them externalities, meaning pushing responsibility, pushing culpability away from those reaping benefit and putting it onto those that are being extracted from. Is it possible to solve the climate crisis just by shifting our methods of production and distribution in that way? It seems like that it's like that's calling for a whole economic revolution. Well, I don't know. Um, I I I like to think it's possible. You know, in the early days of climate activism, the bad guy was the fossil fuel industry. Um, now, with the new new narrative, we've got the chemical industry, the industrial farming industry, and the whole extractive economy. So are we going to be able to change all that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I, I think so. And I think there are ways. In the film, I introduced the idea of the profit monster. And we all know what that is. Um, I also introduced the consumer act, the consumer monster, and many, probably most of us, you know, kind of fall into that second category. You know, we're all obsessed with buying and owning stuff, and this is what drives the economy. Um, and this is why, when consumer spending goes up, Wall Street gets all happy. Um, and so, I think that you know, for one thing, um, when I look at other solutions, we certainly don't need to have so much stuff. We really don't. There's that great film called Stuff. You've probably seen it. But it is a chicken and egg situation. You know, the more is produced, the more we buy. The more they market it to us, the more we buy. And the more we buy, the more they market. So I have this one dream that the manufacturers of all this stuff would, would have to take responsibility for recycling everything they produce. And that's very far out in today's world. And sure, yes, it would increase the cost to the consumer, but a whole new industry would develop. So like a car manufacturer would have to have a, a shop, a place where you would take that brand of car and you would get some money back for it, you know, depending on the condition of the car. And it would be recycled and they could, another, you know, they could subcontract that to another company. But nonetheless, it would be the manufacturer's responsibility 
to take care of what happens to that car when the consumer no longer wants it. Um, and the same could be true of like home appliances and computers and clothing and all that kind of stuff. You know, <laughs> I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm thinking way out there. But, you know, but it's also true that it's popularly understood that we don't need all this stuff. This stuff doesn't make us happy, you know. Um, and a lot of this stuff, you know, one of the things that was interesting, when I went out to a lot of farmers and spoke to them, ecological farmers, one of the things that kept coming up was that they wanted to sell value-added products at their farm store and get value-added products from their farm into local stores. And what they meant by that was, you know, pickles and jams and candy ginger and things that they could do to their product and get it to consumers that would actually give them, hopefully, more money um, than just selling the raw cucumber or something. But there were also people who were um, of, who included value-added products as like baskets and pillows and clothing and toys, right? Mm -hmm. So. I found that very interesting. I mean, if you think of a, you know, a farm is a production center and there's a lot of stuff that could be produced at that farm that would go directly to the community because they're not going to get into some great big distribution system. And a lot of the film is, well, towards the end of the film, when I start to talk about solutions, I get into community and how, you know, the value of community is so important because and, I'm, and by that, I'm talking about a physical community where you live close to the people, not an internet community. We all want to care for the land around ourselves, and not all of us, but I think that a lot of us would love to have local food and to support local food. Um, in fact, one of the things I often, I often think about is, you know, when people talk about what we're going to have to do to solve the climate crisis, they often think, oh, we're going to have to be more austere. And our lifestyles are going to suffer. You know, we're not going to be able to live the way we once did. And I say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm eating healthy food, have a nice community, and I know my farmer, and I can even get beer that was brewed locally here in Chatham, what's the problem with that? That's My lifestyle is not going to suffer. So sure. I don't know. But I don't know if that answers your question. But I feel that there are solutions kind of underground because um, I don't know you know how we're going to get rid of the chemical industry <laughs> you know, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. agricultural well, industry although people are trying and one thing about corporations is if they see a way to make money you know they'll do it so it's complicated yeah yeah but you can't give up you know incentivizing some of the you know john you you talked about this idea of potentially you know, finding a way to offset those negative externalities by, you know, potentially returning things to producers. It seems like an idea like that would have to grow something like a forest where you start small because, you know, the logistics of that would obviously be complicated. But it seems to me that all of our solutions have to be one step in a much bigger plan, a long-term plan, whatever it is that we want to, uh, how we want to reduce our, you know, our footprint, our uh, our chemical use, our own plastic use, all of these things. You know, for me, that I've always been interested in how that manifests in my life, like the 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 steps I can take. But there is the the political side, of course, and you know the the sort of macro. And I wanted to get your opinion because I. I, I've got a friend who, uh, this, this cracked me up. He's, he had a sign on his door. Uh, he lives in, uh, L Lewis in, in the United Kingdom. And he had a sign on his door during, uh, you know, an election saying, you know, everyone had which candidate they wanted. And his sign said, don't vote. It only encourages them. Um, so I've, I, I've kind of been on the, don't put your faith in politicians sign, do what you can do. And, you know, kind of affect change that way. But I was surprised when I was listening to an interview of uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talking about uh, regenerative agriculture. Do you think that this is the type of thing that we could see a large sort of political movement around? Or do you think that this is more of a we got to do this from the grassroots? Answering the second part first, you know, the problem is really severe now. 
and the no matter what we do, the corporations are getting stronger, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and there's a lot of people working now in these in the directions we've been talking about and in the directions that I encourage in the film. Um, and you know, it's hard to say it's even making a dent. So I think that we've got to try to find a way to get this movement into government and into political uh, arenas because that's where big changes can take place. And yes, I, I do. Regenerative agriculture is being, uh, there are people talking about it at a, on, a, on a bigger scale and it is getting money. Uh, Cynthia Daly, who's in my film um, and has a regenerative agriculture school in um, State University of California, she just got a grant for something like $11 million to, to, to study regenerative agriculture. So I think it's possible. I think, you know, it could be a shift. I mean, then you start to worry about, well, look what happened to, you know, organic farming and it got taken over by the corporations. And now it's just, it's really, it's hard to trust organic food when you buy it at the supermarket, you know, uh, yeah, we don't it know. It feels more like a marketing thing. Than right. a actual... That's right. And I'm afraid that's probably will happen with, you know, if it, if it reaches the point where regenerative becomes popular enough, then the corporations will move in and they'll usurp it to some extent and, you know, devalue it a little bit, but it's still a move in the right direction. I mean, cause even though the organic tomato I buy at, well, I won't name the store, but at my local supermarket may not really be organic as far as I'm concerned, it still moved things in the right direction. It's still, you know, the whole organic movement came about because people weren't even aware what type of stuff was being put on their food. I mean, I remember when I was, when I was, I don't know, maybe around 20, um, I, I walked into the kitchen and my sister was cleaning off all of the vegetables we just gotten at the store. And I said, why are you doing that? And she said, oh, don't you know, there's all these poisons and chemicals and stuff on this food. Um, and she cleaned it with soap and everything. So we're all aware of that now. Well, I hope that we're all aware of that now. So we do make progress to some extent. And I do think that, you know, when people are talking about regenerative agriculture politically, at least it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there's, there's a few different points of easy, feasible solutions that we could encourage from efficiency and distribution by localizing our economies a little bit more easily so that we're not shipping things around the world by adjusting our diets to be in line with what is grown locally in season to also making smaller this consumer monster by each of us finding ways to be producers in and of ourselves and of those things that we we need and also reframing what need is away from you know just being into buying what they're selling us but this isn't also to put the responsibility on the shoulders of us as consumers where a lot of the main drive to cause this ecological destruction which is causing this climate change has been first in the hands of colonial empire and then as you say in the film and then the baton has been handed to these multinational corporations right, and, and, right. and industrial um, complexes there's something to be said there in empowering consumers into being producers, not just producers though, but also as stewards. As Karen Washington says in your in your film, land is power. And that kind of brings up the point of those who've been sort of disempowered throughout this history. Is there a way, it doesn't seem like there's a way that we can address this climate crisis without also addressing the social injustice that has been wrought in the process of getting us to where we are now. Absolutely right. I mean, there's we can't try to separate those things out, um, and we have to address all of those problems, and particularly the social problem that and the inequities in our society. We have to address all of those. It is a, a daunting task. I do think it's it's happening. I do think it's possible. I don't know if another way to look at this thing, but our civilization is is in the decline. There's no question of that, and. Um, I suspect that for many reasons, we're going to head into a dark age and it's going to be very difficult. People, you know, talk about the lifestyle destruction <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and 
one thought is that all of this stuff that we're doing and trying to get a new understanding of our relationship to nature and how we can deal with it and understanding a systems approach to things, this is what we'll need to come out of this dark age. Won't be us, but you know, the future generations will perhaps, you know, come out of this dark age with new tools, new understandings, and new relationships with nature that will propel us, you know, forward. Um I, I mean I think that's that's certainly something to think about. Um yeah. you know, because we are we are heading there, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately it, it does seem like it, in getting to some place of security and solution looking forward at this, we can't keep going on the same mentality that got us here. Right. As you put as you put in the film, this you, you kind of boil this all down to the moment of Descartes saying, you know, we are just mental and the world around us is ours for the taking right. and we can do with it what we want, where more actually existence is built on relationships. And the way forward through this is not by drawing segregation and fostering disconnection between people and place and people and each other. The, the solution here is to see the connectivity between us all, um, especially as regards our relationship to the natural world, which we're not at all separate from, as you put so clearly in your documentary. Well, we are a part of nature. We're a part of Gaia. Nature is self-sustaining, self-regulating. And if we become a part of nature and learn how to live with nature and be sustained by nature, you know, we have a, a, a solution to the problem. I mean, it's all about, and you know, right now there's a lot of people who are very concerned about climate change and who feel very frustrated. And I think that these ideas we've been talking about really give people an opportunity to do something. Um, you know, we were talking about, can it happen from the ground up in an underground way? And I think, you know, there is a lot of strength there that People want to do something. They know it isn't a political issue and that there are lots of things they can do. So I, I do have a lot of hope there. And in the end of the film, I end with the line, the more we nurture and protect the land, the more the land will nurture and protect us. And, you know, that kind of sums it up that we've got to get back to this idea that life grows out of the land from the air. I mean, it's amazing. and that we can work with that and it'll work with us. So, you know, there is a lot of hope in that. And, uh, and that, that's where I get my, you know, my spiritual energy, <laughs> um, that the earth is, is, it's an amazing system and we're a part of it. And once we start to get that in our heads, once people start to get these aha moments and realize that, then amazing things could happen. You know, when I put my optimism on. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, optimism in the face of this apocalypse is pretty much the only way we're going to like be able to see each other as each other not enough to come together around it, it seems. Right, right. Um, yeah. Exactly. So you, the film is premiering in, in October, is that right? Right. Uh, so we have a yeah. couple of premieres coming up. We have a premiere in Hudson at TSL, a time and space limited. Uh, it's a great little theater um, mm -hmm. on October 8th. That's at 1 p.m. And um, we'll have a nice panel there with uh, Karen Washington and Stefan Schneider and Willie Denner, all local farmers. The, the content of that premiere is going to be about farming, um, regenerative or, or ecological farming. And then we have a premiere in Boston at Tufts University on October 14th. And there we're going to have, it's going to be more of a scientific emphasis um, we're going to talk about the water cycle. Tom Garo is going to be there. Um, what's really cool is Anastasia Makareva, who's the um, who's the Russian woman who helped co-develop the idea of the biotic pump. She's going to be there. And so that's going to be really cool. And um, then we have another one coming up in Bridgeport. Then we have one in Montreal and a uh, couple in Montreal. And we're kind of building up a network of, of these premieres. Um, so they'll all be on our website, hummingbirdfilms.com, and um, you know we'll update them and we get dates and everything. Yeah, and we'll put this information into our notes as well. Right, right. Great, wonderful. 
Thank you so much. This has been so enlightening. Is there any other thoughts before we wrap no, up? No, I just, I no. Um, well, I'm sure there are plenty, but no. Um, <laughs> I just, I want to thank you for doing this. It sounds great. And, you know, I think that this is how we get the word out through, through you know, guys like you and, and, and really communicating with people at this person to person kind of level, grassroots level. Um, because as I've said probably you know, a million times already, you know, there's a lot of common sense in this. And, and you know, in a way that the whole uh, carbon greenhouse gas thing, no one understands it. There's no common sense there, right? Um, and uh, but so I do think that it's great what what you guys are doing, too. Thanks. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for making this documentary. I think it's it's very important to be getting a little more nuance into the conversation, especially when the solutions seem to become more and more outlandish. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to you both, Scott and John, for showing up, too. Thank you, guys. Yeah. And uh, stay tuned for our next conversation on Our Common Nature. Okay. Take care, y'all. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach out with any comments or questions, feel free to email us at ourcommonnaturepodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at our.common.nature.